These are the true stories of farmers, <coughs> conservationists, sustainable ag advocates, and researchers dedicated to advancing public policies to achieve a sustainable farming and food system in the United States. Find out what happens when people take action and start caring for the land. It's October 11, 2017, and videographer Chip Kuhn and I are at the Methodist Building on Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C., where today it is my pleasure to interview Dr. Jill Auburn, who during her three-decade career was a key figure in advancing science and education to advance organic and sustainable agriculture in the United States. So welcome, Jill. Glad, you, glad you're here. Thank you, Ron. I, uh, as I do with most folks I get to talk to, I ask them to really talk about how you really got interested in, in the whole area of agriculture and sustainable ag and science in particular, and going all the way back to your childhood and then up through your education. I'd be very interested in hearing about that. Well, I didn't start out in agriculture. It skipped a generation in my family. My mm. grandfather, Jack Colbertson, was a citrus and avocado grower in Southern California. Mm. But I grew up um, partly in the Midwest, west of Chicago, in suburbs, uh, right next to farmland that was mm. being converted to houses. Yeah. And um, then upstate New York, Schenectady, New York. I was actually born in Schenectady, so I can spell that, which <laughs> I think I'm, made me a good speller maybe. You needed an education just for to, that. <laughs> yeah, we moved to the Chicago area and then back um, to Schenectady for high school. And I, um, I liked being out walking around um, in Schenectady. I'd walk around in the woods. I gardened, but I never really thought of working in agriculture. Oh. Um, I was part of the sort of granola generation, maybe. I baked my own bread, and I went off to college with a copy of Ewell Gibbons' Stocking the Wild Asparagus, oh. um, but not you know, formal agriculture growing. Um, I went to I, – I think I was already always – destined to be a scientist because I liked math and science and I was always a, um, you know, show me the data, show me the evidence kind oh, of person. Yeah. Um, my dad was an electrical engineer and I was the middle of three girls in the family and pretty conventional, fairly conservative, not totally right wing, but pretty conservative um, family um, and traditional. I think if my dad had had any sons, I might not have been the one that he asked to help him build Heathkit televisions and radios and, you know, show me how the car works when he took the car apart. So I think, um, you know, being a fairly quiet, studious, uh, observant uh, middle child was probably important to my becoming a scientist. Yeah. Um, okay. So I went, went to uh, undergraduate school and got my master's at Miami University in Ohio. It was a really good school for me because it was you know, big enough to have some graduate programs and some research going on. But I was very shy and very reserved and quiet. And if, I th if I'd gone to a bigger school, I think I might have been lost in the shuffle. Mm. Um, this was... Uh, I had an off to college in 71, the year after Kent State. So, um, and being in a fairly conservative family, I was not politically active as a lot of people were that time. But I, um, you know, uh, so it was a, nice to be at a quiet campus with a lot of brick buildings. Um, 
But I um, studied psychology first, because the science of how people act and, and, you know, why people do the things they do sounded very interesting to me. The only thing I really remember from psychology is that what people say they will do and what they actually do are often two very different things. (laughs) Right. Um, I took my very first year, the spring of my first year, I took an environmental studies class from Gary Barrett, who was an ecologist there. And that really had a big influence on me. I was just very taken by that. Um, At some point, I read Silent Spring probably around that time. And um, Gary was doing research on the unintended um, side effects of pesticides on ecosystems. Mm -hmm. So not the bugs you're trying to kill, but all the beneficials, the um, mice in the field, the, you know, he he was really an ecosystem scientist. And um, I ended up working for him that summer where I learned how tedious science can be. um, And, you know, how much field work is just, uh, you know, a lot of grunt work. Yeah. I think because I moved over then from psychology to um, zoology for my master's degree, I didn't actually do work in that um, field exactly. I got more involved in animal behavior and animals I thought were a lot easier to understand and manipulate than people. (laughs) So there is a time in my life, and I could probably still now tell you more than you ever would want to know about how a tadpole knows where it's going in the pond. It's actually very interesting. If you walk up to a farm pond, bullfrog tadpoles are at the edge. They go to deep water and I won't take an hour to explain how they know, but they know which way is deep water. They're they're not just looking around. They know mm. how to get to deep water, and it's mm. very important to their survival. So my um, work with agriculture at that time was mostly going to farm ponds and asking the farmers if I could take tadpoles from their pond to go back and, and wow. uh, study how they um, learned where they were going. So um, let's see, then I took a year while my husband, I I met my husband through Gary Barrett, too, that's important. And he was a, Walt Auburn, he's an environmental educator at the time, or was studying to be that. So I took a year to work while he went to get his master's degree. Uh, I see. And that's when I found out how pretty much unemployable someone with a master's degree in animal behavior is so I worked as a secretary and that was pretty eye-opening. Um, but it, it also gave me a chance to rethink. I think I had been thinking I would then go on for my doctorate. I was planning to go to Duke and study salamanders in the Smokies, which is fascinating. They're mm-hmm. complex, really fascinating animals. But during that year off, I thought about, well, could I do something a little more socially worthwhile? And I can't remember how I learned it. I think Walt knew about um, this fellow um, uh, at the University of California, Davis, Ken Watt, Kenneth E.F. Watt, who was doing global modeling of world issues of food and environment, energy, how everything connected. And because I was very good um, at mathematics as well as science, you know, that really intrigued me to think that you could, and computers were just being used. You know, I was right in that era where you would have to submit a deck of cards to the big mainframe, but then we were just switching over to having desktop computers where you could do a lot more without having to worry about the the cost of computing time. Hmm. So um, I ended up going to UC Davis and being a student of of, um, 
Ken Watts, and his big modeling team had just really kind of shrunk down to uh, much less funding and a much smaller group, which was wonderful for me because, again, I was a still pretty shy, retiring, mm -hmm. academic kind of gal, and I wasn't lost in a big group. I got a lot of good interaction with him um, involved in um, some of his manuscripts, and I ended up doing for my dissertation, I ended up doing models of something much smaller and simpler, but agriculturally related since Davis is an ag school. I did models of where produce, fresh produce was grown and where it was consumed in the state and different routing patterns for getting mm. it from producer to consumer. So when we later got into all of the local um, agriculture, I could say, you know, way back when I was looking at kind of how things moved oh, from yeah. producer to consumer. There, there was a quite an active organic alternative ag group on campus, the student farm that Mark Van Horn ran, the growers that ended up settling in the Cape Valley and becoming organic growers there. Um, I was actually not all that involved in that because I was not a, a real hands-on. I was still much more the sort of scientist calculator behind the computer. And uh, I often wish I had gotten a little more involved with some of those folks because they'd been real leading lights in, mm -hmm. in terms of practice in um, in California. Yeah. And then let's see, I um, graduated and did some, I didn't want to move and go somewhere else and take an academic job. I was pretty happy where I was and my husband was gainfully employed. So I did various little projects as, um, you know, under grant funding or postdocs and um, one of them that I'm pretty proud of, I don't know if you've ever heard of it, I don't think too many people have these days, but very early on, we thought organic farmers should have the same kind of market information that conventional growers had. And they didn't. You couldn't find what prices were. You couldn't, um, you didn't know what was moving through the marketplace. So I was primary with, with a colleague in developing something called the Organic Market News and Information Service. Sounds mm. very grandiose, <laughs> but it really was uh, me and then later some other people um, just sitting at my home computer once a week, phoning up the distributors of organic produce in California. There were maybe half a dozen of them and uh, asking them, going down a list of produce items and asking them, okay, what did you get this week? What was the selling price? And then publishing a little newsletter. And, mm. uh, that That's in the archives, probably the National Ag Library or somewhere. Um, it didn't last for too many years, but um, but it was, I think, an example of you know trying to provide those services to to organic growers. I ended up going to an actual real full-time paid job when the University of California started its Sustainable Agriculture Research and Education Program, or UC SEREP, we called it. We always pronounce the the P in SEREP so that right. later on, when Lisa became Sayer nationally, you could distinguish. Well, I see. So and that was going before it at least started. I always think of you as almost the founder of that. But. Not quite. I appreciate that credit. I was in on the ground floor almost, but the first director was Bill Liebhart. Oh, it was. Who came to us from Rodale. And yeah, oh, I know him a little I bit. I learned so much from him. He was such a great guy. He came, he had started the big systems experiments at uh, Rodale. Mm -hmm. 
And he came in and I tell you, his phone was just ringing off the hook. There was just no way that he could even return phone calls. So the first hire that he made was um, to hire me to run the information program. There was a feeling that even though the wording and some of the certain, certainly academic talk of sustainability was fairly new, that there was a lot of information out there about how to practice sustainable and organic agriculture, that a lot of it in growers' knowledge, a lot of it in the older literature, kind of pre-pesticide, mm -hmm. and that it would be worthwhile to pull together what was already out there rather than reinventing the wheel. Mm -hmm. And because I was pretty good at computers and um, that kind of thing, um, I was hired. It was right about the time that the World Wide Web was just a mm -hmm. glimmer in a few people's eye. Mm -hmm. um, but the idea of pulling stuff together in a structured, organized form um, was what I was hired to do. And I can remember after my interview, Bill took me back to his office and said, would you stay here just a minute more? And he looked me in the eye and he said, you know, this is not a small thing we're doing here. We are really going to change the face of California agriculture if you'd like to help me do this. <laughs> so I was I was totally sold and I I learned a lot from him and we made mistakes, but I learned so much from him. Um, one of the things that I remember him saying is, I know a good project when I see him or her. Mm. So it was really all about people, investing yeah. in people. And I think that's when I started to learn to come a little out of my academic and data shell and kind of look up and talk to people and understand more that a lot of that was in people's heads and in interacting with people and not just all in books and, and numbers. So I know that you were uh, went out there at the same time, things for the work that Bob Scowcroft and Mark Lipson were doing and those kind of people, some of, I, some of whom I'm interviewing. Yeah, I met them. I'm sure I can't remember exactly how I met those two, but I met them about that time through those activities. And, and I actually was the, I think the only university person that was on the original board of the Organic Farming Research Foundation. Uh. And I think they wanted me on it because they wanted somebody. We, we were running a grants program through UC Serap. And even though my formal job was the information program, there weren't that many of us. And we all did everything. So I helped Bill a lot with the administration of the grants program. And I think they valued somebody who kind of knew how that kind of thing worked. Although I must say, OFRF was my first realization of how productive and nimble and wonderful nonprofit organizations are. Mm -hmm. Because I went into it thinking, well, before we can start giving out grants, we need to have procedures and things written down and work out this and that. And they're like, oh, no, we're just, you know, we're going to be making grants by next spring. Here we go. Hmm. And um, I remember the first, um, what do you call it, annual report for OFRF was just a little pocket size, mm -hmm. card size yeah. thing, not this big elaborate. So I, I learned a lot from that experience of getting involved in OFRF. Some of those early meetings were actually in my house. Really? In Sacramento, yeah, mm -hmm. or in Davis, uh, rather, yeah. Good, yeah. good. It was a great Great group to learn from. Did you then ultimately be the director of the SEREP, or in the, and how long did you stay there? Uh, yeah, I never was director. Oh. Let's see, I started soon after it. So 86 was the legislation. So I probably started there in about 87. 
And I stayed there just about a decade. I went to to USDA in 98. Mm. And I, I went from information director to associate director. And I pretty much assumed that if and when Bill retired, that I would compete to be mm-hmm. the director. And I can remember being out to dinner with some good friends one night saying, I love my life. I don't want anything to change. <laughs> and I think within six months, I had been convinced that I should apply for the USDA job uh, with oh. the SARE program. <laughs> yeah. My, my um, introduction to SARE was back when it was Lisa. Right. Um, when it first got started, I always and tell people. And what's LISA stand for? Low Input Sustainable Agriculture. Mm-hmm. And, and the federal program. Yeah, yeah, the federal program. And my understanding, I've never gone back and looked. You know, I'm, I'm a, because I worked at the university and then at USDA, I've always been the program implementer. And yeah. while I'm affected by and I'm certainly carrying out policy, I'm, I've never been on the policy development you know, legislative side. So I've like never Pat actually Lett- gone. Pat Madden and people like that. And- yeah. Oh, Pat Madden was a great mentor of mine. Oh. And actually, my first proposal to Lisa in that first year was not funded. Oh. I always tell people that in the competitive grant game, I couldn't even get. <laughs> um, but it was a proposal to do on the national scale what we were doing in California, kind of an information program. Mm. So it, for whatever reason, it wasn't funded. Um, But Patrick Madden, who was the national director at the time, came back to me and I can remember him taking me for coffee and sitting down at the student union. And he said, you know, I have something I would really like you to do. I have people identified all around the country who have knowledge and interest in sustainable agriculture. Would you chair a committee of these people to pull together an information system for the SARE program nationally. So basically the thing I had proposed to do, but he had he knew all of the people mm-hmm. in the different walks of life and, and the different sectors around the country that had the knowledge that um, was needed to do this. Yeah. So he, he basically set me up and mm-hmm. I, I was flabbergasted to chair something because I was not, like I said, not a big people manager <laughs> at that point, but um, stepped up to the challenge and had just a, a wonderful time with people around the country um, pulling together what the, the SARE program would, well, what the LISA program, which became SARE, um, could do to take advantage of, of existing information. The National Ag Library was involved. That's how I met Jane McLean. Um, I'm trying to think of all the other people that were involved. It was just a, a great group of people. And that eventually morphed later into becoming what we now call SARE Outreach. It's the outreach arm, the communications information arm of the National SARE program. Yeah, Sustainable Ag Research and Education. Yes, yes. My other pathway into the national office after starting that committee was when, and I'm trying to remember what year this was. This is probably 1994, I think. The... um, The part of the legislation for that program that said there should be a a professional development extension outreach, and it had been research and education, education in the student sense, but not, um, or I'm sorry, no, it was research and education with education meaning extension of the information Mm -hmm. out to the public, but there wasn't a formal um, 
program to then take those ag professionals that are out there in extension mm-hmm. and NRCS, which I think was maybe still soil conservation service at the time, yeah. but to tap those ag professionals and welcome them into the program in a specific way that would help to feed them information and develop their capacity. So that was competed regionally when that part of the legislation was funded. I applied to coordinate that for the Western states. And um, so did Al Kirky from NCAT. I've interviewed Al. Al is wonderful. And they, um, they came back to us and they said, we like your proposal, Jill. We like Al's proposal. Would you work together? Oh. And, you know, a lot of times forced marriages don't work all that well, but it worked so well. It was just wonderful because, because Al is who he is and yes. had the experience. But also just to have a university person and a nonprofit person was just very true to what Sarah stood for um, and and just very effective for all the reasons that, that Sarah was set up that way to be a partnership of that sort. Good. And so that was you were still out in California then. Yep. And yeah, I basically it. sold half of my time from California to work with the Western states um, with the professional development program. And then when the national program leader job opened up in 98, um, I applied for that. I didn't intend to. I really did not want to leave California. But uh, Rob Myers, who had been the national director and was leaving, um, came to me, called me up. I can't remember if I saw him in person or if he called me up, but he just said, Jill, you know, you've done some things nationally with the Sustainable Ag Network Information Program. We think you would do well in this job. Please consider applying. And I had, I really had not thought about USDA and mm-hmm. my my dad, you know, I told you I went from this, came from this fairly conservative Republican family. Mm-hmm. My dad, who is so proud of his daughter, who worked for the university, when he found out his daughter was going to go work for the federal government, <laughs> doing practically the same thing. But just the mindset, I mean, he, he was always a great supporter and, and was very proud of me. But I could just tell he just thought that was kind of different to have a daughter who was a fed. Yeah. Uh, but my dad was in North Carolina at the time. Uh, you know, you reach an age in your life where your parents are getting a little bit older. My mom was still in the Bay Area of California, but she was retiring and she was thinking of moving to Richmond, Virginia, where her sister was. Um, my husband's parents had moved from the Chicago area to Richmond. Mm. So in terms of, you know, when you want to spend a little more time with your parents as they're getting a little bit older and the idea of a a job, I I really had enjoyed the Western region of Sarah so much. I thought, well, these other three regions must be equally interesting. And Mm -hmm. um, so I'll give it a try. And I applied to be the national program leader and and came to D.C. specifically to be the national director for the, the SARE program. And I think that was about that was about the time it had changed its name from Lisa to SARE. So. Yeah, so that's about 98. 98, yep. yep. So you moved out here and then you continued to direct that program for a decade, didn't you? Yeah, yeah. Uh, hair more. Hmm. And after it had been about a decade, I mean, it's a wonderful program because it has such a... Um, a broad span. It's not something you ever get tired of because the kinds of things we were funding and the kinds of things that the the um, growers and the the people that would sit on the administrative councils, the ideas people would come up with for priority funding areas and the proposals people would come up with were constantly changing. And 
the scope of sustainable agriculture is broad enough that it could encompass quite a bit. So it could do organic. It um, early on did very little in the way of marketing or value adding, but then when that became more of a trend, it could fund that kind of work. So there, there were changes, but still, I didn't think anybody should do the same thing for more than 10 years. Yes. And, and I thought it'd be good for the program, too, Sure. Um, to have new leadership. Well, you so, know, I wanted you to, well, Sarah come, has been coming up a lot from a number of people. You know, I interviewed Al and, of course, others that, uh, I mean, even like Don Bustos, when I talked to him in New Mexico, he talked about how much his Sarah Grant changed his operation. Uh, and then over the years, FERD and the coalition have been trying to keep Sarah and get more money into it and everything. Yeah. It's been very important. Uh, but maybe you could just talk a little bit about what exactly Sarah did as far as benefiting moving sustainable agriculture through the research and education mode. Right. That would right. be useful, I think. It did so much. It was such an innovative program. Um so for several reasons. First of all, just to have a national program that was funding sustainable agriculture gave it legitimacy. Mm -hmm. You know, scientists will go where the money is. Mm -hmm. And if you have some money and you put it out to do certain things, it gets a level of respectability that, um, you know, there were, there were people here and there that were studying this, but not nearly enough. And it, it gave it legitimacy. Mm -hmm. But way beyond that was the way it was structured. So there were several things about the way it was structured that were just so, um, so foresightful, so advanced. Um, one was that, you know, farmer, farmer knowledge was important and that NGOs, that people from all walks of life, all different perspectives had something to bring to the table and not just to advise you, advise the staff and then go home, which was a little bit, UC Sarah had some of that same flavor, but still those were advisory committees. In SARE, the regional councils were actual decision-making councils. So you had farmers and NGOs and university and government people all sitting around the table making decisions. And the national program leader was there as a part of that group. And certainly I would speak up if they were proposing to do something that would not be legal or would mm. really would raise horrible questions when it got back to D.C. And, and I think people respected the national program leader and would ask that. So it was a, you know, as a collaborative. But the decision making was really at the regional level in those councils that were real citizens mm -hmm. and uh, particularly in the West. I mean, we in the West felt so far from Washington, D.C. Right. How could somebody in Washington, D.C. be making decisions about ranching mm -hmm. in the West? So to have a council that could, it had to stick to the basic definition of sustainable agriculture and the basic guidelines around the program, but they could really do what was best for, for people in the West. Mm -hmm. So that, that structure of shared decision-making and shared responsibility, I think, was just an amazing thing about I the I think program. it's what the farmers, have, I've heard a number of people talking about, how it really honored the farmer and the knowledge yeah. that was there. And yeah. they could build on that and support it. And when the people like Bustos wanted to try something, there was respect for his 
ideas and things like that. Absolutely. And and that's where so much of the innovation was coming from. Not that scientists don't innovate as well, but that interaction between the scientists and the producers. And the idea of those farmer grants, I think I wasn't, check, check me on this, but I think it was the North Central region that came up with the idea of the farmer grants first, but it spread to the other regions very quickly. And that was one of the best things about having four regions. One yeah. would come up with an idea the other would take it up. But the idea of funding farmers um, directly to do their own research. And it wasn't always, um, we used to worry a little bit that a, a report of a farmer grant might make people think something would apply more places than it might just mm -hmm. on that farm. So there was definitely a role for the larger research and education grants to take some of those farmer ideas and test them out on a wider scale. But the creativity that came out of some of those farmer grants and the new enterprises that came out of some mm -hmm. of those farmer grants and the, um, you know, just the excitement um, was, was just wonderful to see. Yeah. And I think as you've kind of said this, but the idea that then I think it stimulated a lot of other research and uh, like in the land grants and things like that, too, that. Oh, absolutely. Uh, yes. That, you know, when you count how much the budget was and things like that with Sarah, it was not that much money, but I think it stretched out into larger pools. And uh, it absolutely did. I would often hear from people, oh, well, Sarah didn't fund my research, but I found another source mm -hmm. of funding or it got me on a path of doing something different. So, yeah, I think there was a big multiplier effect there. And just um, just the respectability that it got. I mean, the National Academies did a big study and then did another study mm -hmm. you know, some years later. So there are lots of things added to the credibility. Um, but but just having a grant program, I think, was really was really key. And I got to interview another person who speaks highly of it. I was coming to mind when you were is uh, when you were talking is Garth Youngberg. He went yes. up and started the Institute for Alternative Agriculture. Right. That was, you know, that was working in that science area and getting, you know, journaled science in this institute. You know. That was so important to the credibility. I was actually on their board. I thought when, so. when I got to D.C., um, I had to resign from the board fairly early on because it was kind of a conflict of interest oh, yeah. to be a, a Fed and to be on a board of directors. But, um, oh, he, you know, talk about a, a single person who just has a huge effect and, and was kind of out there in the wilderness a little bit by himself for a while. Yeah. Um, that that uh, report and recommendations on organic farming that he um yeah, he was in one he of the authors. spearheaded was, well, before he went on to found the Institute, was right. an amazing piece of work, too. I got to interview Bob Berglund, if you look on these list of the Secretary of Agriculture under Carter. And uh, he's still with us in, in Minnesota. Uh -huh. And uh, he talked, we talked to him a good deal about being the secretary when that report actually was commissioned and study and then actually came out right as he was uh ready to leave uh his position in 1980 ah, so gosh. that was a very interesting part of that discussion yeah yeah going back to, to well you know i know we'll get to this later but the you know I, you had said to think about in preparation for this you know what what has gone well what are we proud of what i i know i thought at the beginning of my career that by the time i was at this stage by the time i hit retirement that <laughs> This would be everywhere. Um, so, you know, part of me is just really thrilled to see how much things have grown, um, how many things have become more widely accepted. 
But part of me is, oh, really? Is that all we've done? Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, it's a it's a push pull. I think that's I I ask almost everybody that question. And that's kind of the main that's pretty much the answer. Yeah. You know, it just seems like such a good thing and it's accomplishing so much good. But it's sure a struggle to get it to become like any kind of a dominant paradigm in agriculture in this yeah. country. I, I do think, and I think this is another benefit of the SARE program. It, it was so unusual at the time, mm-hmm. but it has reverberated out and affected other programs. And mm-hmm. certainly through the advocacy of the National Sustainable Ag Coalition and others, uh, this hasn't happened automatically. But, you know, there wasn't an organic research program. No. SARE could fund that. There um wasn't a specialty crops program. And as these programs have come along, they have borrowed many of the the elements of the CERA program. Not every program has borrowed every element, but certainly the organic program has um, very strong farmer involvement. The um, specialty crop research initiative has very strong focus on a systems approach, which was always a hallmark. And sustainability is woven through many of these programs. And I know a lot of uh, folks are skeptical, think the word sustainable has been co-opted or so broad that it maybe doesn't have a clear meaning. Um, For me, it's important that it be broad and that it be a goal. So I, I have a lot of respect for organic agriculture and the people who practice organic, that's a very important part of sustainable and an important way to work towards sustainability in many, many settings. But I do think that sustainability includes more of the social dimensions, mm-hmm. which many organic farmers care about and work on. You know, there's a lot of overlap between mm-hmm. the two. But I, I do think that um, thinking about it as a goal and that there are multiple ways to achieve that goal, even if you never intend to be organic, mm-hmm. that mainstream farmers can use cover crops, can do things to improve their soil, can do things to improve working conditions for their labor. There are just so many things that can contribute towards sustainability. I think it is important to have that big shining goal that in some ways is um, unachievable in a perfect sense, but that everybody can work to. And as our knowledge and practice improves, you you can always get better, and nothing will will um, you know if you if you have an idea for how to be more sustainable, Sarah can find a way to work that into the research agenda. Whereas another program, for example, the IPM program, mm-hmm. um, integrated pest management, can't do a whole lot outside of pest management. Mm-hmm. So. Um, I've always thought that one good thing about Sarah was that it, it can, it, as long as you focus on that goal and as long as you're doing good science, so, you know, there's a, a lot of flexibility to, to learn and grow in it. Oh, good. That's very interesting. Very helpful. I, and I now I know I want to move on because you I would like to move on because you have sure. some really good other things in your career. So you did that for 10 years and then you went to work. Was it at USDA and the chief with the chief scientist? Yeah, I stayed. I stayed at USDA and actually kept my regular job. But the um, legislation for the what became the office of the chief scientist um, passed and said that it should be staff, that the REE secretary should be the chief scientist for the department. So there was a single voice speaking for science at USDA. 
Mm. And that, that that person should have an office that is staffed by people who are senior scientists from around the department or elsewhere that go on detail for one to four years to support that function. Mm. So I went on detail to that office intending to, I don't know what, probably go back to NIF at some point since it was a, a one to, to four year. It was actually... And NIF is... Uh, NIF is the National Institute of Food and Agriculture, which yeah. is the agency I spent my whole career at, at which USDA. Include, which included the SARE program. Yeah, the, SARE yeah. was one of the yeah, programs. Right. Exactly. SARE was one of the programs that um, was actually, I called it the agency with the unpronounceable acronym. It was the Cooperative State Research, Education, and <laughs> Extension Service when I joined it, C-S-R-E-E-S. Yeah. But the same legislation that created the Office of the Chief Scientist um, changed, really, really started the National Institute of Food and Agriculture, but carried over to it most of the authorities and responsibilities it had been with CSRES. Okay. So it wasn't just renaming the agency. There, there were a number of changes there, but, um, but I was, I was selling that. So at the Office of the Chief Scientist, um, that was a great learning experience for me um, to get involved in science policy, science coordination within the department on a whole range of topics. The one that I had the most involvement in, I mean, I certainly could represent sustainable agriculture and sort of look out for some of the um, programs that were happening in the various agencies around sustainable agriculture. But the thing that I did that was most interesting because it was a little different was I was responsible for a for a chunk of time for the scientific integrity policy, mm. which is a very important thing that was happening across the federal government. President Obama had said, and his science advisor had said, every agency should have a written integrity policy about how politics basically doesn't interfere with science mm. and that scientists should be free to speak out about the implications of their findings as long as they stuck to the science. And that's always the tricky part because you always want to go a little beyond the science yeah. to the policy. Um, and I, you know, I skipped over when I, when I came to DC, David Schlegel was a, a Western SARE, the original director for Western SARE, or Lisa at the time. But he, he said two things when you go to DC, I'm going to give you two pieces of advice. He said, um, fly in and out of national airport. It's the most convenient. <laughs> and, but he said more seriously, he said, there will be things you cannot say or do as a Fed. As a university employee, there was academic freedom, although in a politically sensitive program, you still were very careful. Mm -hmm. But there are things you cannot say or do as a Fed. I could not get involved in lobbying, in policy, I can't share information about the budget when the budget is behind the curtain there. You, you will lose your job for doing mm. certain things. So I said, there will be things that you cannot say or do as a Fed. Just know that there are people who can say and do them for you. And that was really, I mean, NSAC, the National Sustainable Ag Coalition, was really the people that I felt the most confidence in that they, you know, Ferd Hefner and the gang there were, doing the policy thing and I could implement and we could have them come brief our meetings on what was going on and I could share with them everything I was allowed to share 
but um, you know there there always was that little bit of a Align. So that's what the scientific integrity policy was in a way meant to clarify is what the role of a departmental scientist could be and should be. Um, and those policies are still in effect. I don't mm-hmm. think this administration has done anything to disturb those. And maybe some of the departments may have done some things that I don't think fit with them too well, but I don't think we'll go there in this. Uh, no, but I had I did have to say I was sort of thinking about our current uh, Trump administration and that the difficulty scientific facts versus alternative facts that they put forward have uh, have difficulty uh, separating those two some people. You know, it's like there is that going on. You know, I I stayed on. I retired uh, as I was about to turn 64. And I had always thought I would retire. And it was last spring, last April. I thought I would retire at 62. That's how things were kind of set up for a lot of people at NIFA stay on longer because we love the work. We, But I stayed on a couple years longer um, because I really was enjoying the work. And we'll get to the beginning farmer program. But I, yeah. I had just started with that. Wanted to keep that going for a few years, give it some stability, and I was really liking the work. Um, but I'm as a as a person, I'm I'm happy to say that I don't think that NIFA has too much interference from above. I mean, it really is a science agency, and the science, you know, the best science gets funded, and there isn't that I've seen and that my colleagues so far anyway have told me, I don't see interference. I see direction coming down from, you know, focus on this or we want to see more work in this. But in terms of the integrity of the science, I think it's, it's very solid. So if you have to be in the federal government now, um, obviously it's clear where my politics are, even though I came from a Republican family. Um, you know, it's, it's, a good place to be within the department because they really do care about science and you're fairly insulated from the the powers that be that are doing political things. And it doesn't have a political pointy at the top of it? It does. Mm-hmm. Um, has, yeah, that was a big change in that same farm bill that gave us, uh, that's a really good point. Um, but that, you know, our political appointee, Sonny Ramaswamy, is a wonderful um, academic, former academic he knows and he fully supports the scientific integrity policy. And he so he can interact like a political appointee does, which is, I think, the reason that the, the writers of that legislation wanted a political appointee, because an agency that doesn't have a political appointee heading it doesn't have quite as much heft. So That's he can that. he can interact as a political appointee. But yet he's. Um, you know, he's he's a solid scientist and he respects the the scientific integrity. I mean, as a program leader, you you have to feed the beast, I call it. You know, mm-hmm. a call will come out for what are you doing on this or that or that administration priority. So you, you know, you need to feed up and make sure that people higher up are aware of what you're doing. Sure. But I, I did not experience um, and I think there's minimal, if any, um, at NIFA, you know, really. Um, uh, interference with with the science. I think that's one of the good things about a, a program like Sarah. As long as it's there, Congress funds it, people carrying it out. Um, there's enough worker bees in that agency and in the department that 
that know and care about this stuff, I, I think you can write out some of the ups and downs of changing administrations. And the, and the fact that I think even politically from Sarah, a lot of the farmers, you know, are, they come from all different places in the political spectrum as well. Yeah, that that's program. true. That's true. So yeah. that's another another aspect of it all. Yeah, yeah. And speaking of farmers, and so the last couple of years, then you went to work. You did the be. You worked with the beginning, beginning farmer. farmer and yeah. Well, let me program. let me do one more yeah. thing from oh, yeah. the office Please of the do. chief scientist because yeah, I would yeah. be totally oh, yeah. remiss well, to leave this out. Please so do. working working in that office was also um, very soon. You know, within six eight within a year of going to that office, I went to that office during the sort of changing administration. But Kathleen Merrigan came in as deputy secretary. Oh, yes. And so that was a great highlight. I was not directly working for her, but in some ways I was because, mm. you know, the deputy secretary wants something, you, mm-hmm. you know, you respond. So um, two things that I'm very proud of um, working with her. One was small, but I think important. Um, she invited soon after she was in her office she invited me and Kathy Green from the Economic Research Service. I don't know if you know Kathy but don't. she's she was at USDA before I came studying organic agriculture in the Economic Research Service. And she's had a whole career of doing really clear-headed, you know, economic analysis, data collection around organic agriculture. And she has been just a bulldog Mm. to keep that research program going, to start it in the first place when nobody was doing that kind of thing, and then to keep it going. She's a a very quiet, hardworking worker bee. Um, She gives talks and things like they all do, but but I can relate to, you know, she's kind of nose down usually just doing this work. And ERS is pretty good about, you know, sticking to their role of economic research and not getting too far off the reservation in terms of you know bigger policy. Mm-hmm. But Kathleen invited her and me into her office and said, I would like you to convene a group around the whole USDA, somebody from each agency and office, find out what they're doing in organic agriculture and what they think they could be doing in organic agriculture. So Kathy had just tremendous ideas and subject knowledge, and she had connections with people because of the analysis she'd been doing. But I had a platform from being in the office of the chief scientist. I could reach out in a way that she didn't feel, even though Kathleen had asked her to, she still didn't quite feel from where she sat in the department that she could quite you know, do that sort of reaching out. So the two of us in about a month's time convened a committee because I think Kathleen only gave us a month. (laughs) Maybe it was six weeks, but she said, how fast can you do this? So we pulled together a report from all of the different parts of the department. And it was, there were people came out of the woodwork who were interested in organic or had been doing a little bit of organic and were thrilled to see this kind of thing happening it had to be vetted through their leadership. So you couldn't be too much off the reservation, but we did just an internal report. This was not for the public. I I don't know if it got shared publicly or not, but what it was, was a setup for Mark Lipson. So little did we know that Kathleen was working to get Mark Lipson to come in to work on organic policy across the department. And he could hit the ground running for a whole lot of reasons because he's who he is, but we could hand him 
a set of people and a document of what those people had said they thought was going on and, and could be done. He went well beyond that very, very quickly, but it was it was a fun little task to do. Oh, I'm really glad you told that story. And then the other, the big thing that people know about is Know Your Farmer, Know Your Food. Yeah. And that was a wonderful um, initiative to be involved in. I played a supporting role. I chaired the committee for a while. Kathleen was really the chair, but if she couldn't be there, mm. I could convene the group. And um, and she had some wonderful people. Lucas Knowles was the political staffer that really got it going. Um, uh, Eleanor Starmer was the person that she brought in, who is now with her at, at GW, but was just a brilliant person that she brought in after Lucas left. And um, so other most other people did a lot of the work, but I, I had a role in it. And the idea that if you want to do something different, you don't have to wait for legislation. You don't have to um, wait for anybody's approval. You can just say, and it was kind of like the organic report, but in a bigger way. It was kind of mm-hmm. like, well, what, what programs do we have that are doing something in this space? And more importantly, what programs do we have that could be doing something in this yeah. space? And then it became, if they are doing something or could be doing something in this space, are there little tweaks that the deputy secretary could get people to make to make those programs serve local and regional food systems even better. So that was just um, a, a thrill to see people come out of the woodwork again and to see you know, high-level administrators and lower-level worker bees all working together to make stone soup, really. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that's, I think, I think it accomplished a lot and showed people a lot of the connections among different programs that separately had been working. So that was a big, a big deal. But I also was acting director of the Office of the Chief Scientist for, I think, two rotations, so almost two years. And yeah. then it be it, they finally were ready to compete it to have a permanent director. And I hadn't thought about it till now, but I guess that was kind of like when I was at UC Serap and everybody assumed I would compete. Yeah. You know, I remember this was over Christmas time one year. I remember just talking with my husband about, you know, I should want to do that. It's a great position. Kathy Wotecki was the undersecretary. Ann Bartesco was the deputy undersecretary in REE. Both very supportive of sustainability. Ann Bartesco, especially when she was in the Forest Service, she'd done tons of sustainability work. She was very supportive of the social dimensions. They both were. So it was a, a great environment for a lot of reasons, but it just wasn't me. Mm-hmm. wasn't me to be coordinating a bunch of science topics. I really loved doing program work, and uh, I wanted to go back to NIFA. Mm. So I went back to NIFA. Mm-hmm. And, um, this must have been, uh, I should know, but probably 2003, thereabouts. Um, no, I'm sorry, oh, 2013. 2013, yeah. roughly 12 or 13 Gosh, losing a decade there. Um, I don't think they expected me back. (laughs) For a while, they didn't quite, because Rob Hedberg had taken over the SARE program and was doing a great job. Mm. And I say that's another great thing about SARE is it has a structure that, you know, as long as you don't mess it up, you you know, somebody else can come in and the the program does well. Um, So I, what did I do? I got involved in AFRI the Agriculture and Food Research Initiative, which is the big flagship research science program at NIFA. 
It's made up of a lot of different programs. It has the small and mid-sized farm program that Dennis Abadagi um, leads primarily. Dennis is one of the unsung heroes of NIFA in terms of involving small farmers and understanding the holistic approach for small and mid-sized farms and involving minority-serving institutions and NGOs. He's a, he's a hard worker and uh, one of those people behind the scenes that gets a ton done. Hmm. So um, Dennis, I worked with Dennis on that small farm program within AFRI. I worked on the um, uh, rural development um, kind of social science programs of the of AFRI. And I'm not a social scientist by training, really, but I've always called myself a social science sympathizer because, <laughs> you know, you're trained in ecology, you have a systems approach, mm-hmm. but also with sustainability, the the human and social dimensions are so important that I had learned a bit about that over the years. So I worked in AFRI a bit. Um, and then um, Suresh, Suresh Warren, who had been running the beginning farmer and rancher development program that funds organizations to do um, outreach and training for new farmers. Right. Um, he moved on to head the education group at NIFA and left a bit of a gap there. And I jumped into the gap and with Dennis Abadagi um, and now Wesley Dean, who joined us a couple years ago, um, managed that program. And that was a whole heck of a lot of fun because it was a lot of the same organizations that um, had been involved in the SARE program. It was a lot of nonprofits or the extension side of, of universities um, or those working together, doing workshops, training, student farms, incubator farms, mm-hmm. um, you know, all kinds of programs for new farmers. And agriculture has become such an exciting thing that young people want to be a part of. Right. Um, it, it's That was just a really fun program to be involved in. And I know it was one of the priorities became of several of the groups within the NSAC coalition. Uh, and NSAC played a role in trying to get in, always is in there trying to get more funding and that sort yes. of thing for the program. Yeah. Oh, they, I mean, NSAC, none of this would have happened without NSAC. All of these programs, the list of programs that they have advocated for and the people that they have brought together um, in that effort over a long period of time. Mm-hmm. Um, just, yeah, nothing could have happened on the inside without all of that kind of activity on the outside. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Well, good. You've taken us through, I think, up to your retirement, right? More, more or less? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, so. that's really good. Well, I would like to uh, kind of get then, I guess, to my usual final two uh, points that I ask people. One of them is, if you want to d- deal with it, um, what are you sort of uh, disappointed about or missed opportunities or anything like that? And then moving towards what kind of paints the paves the way for what next? You know, what do you think should happen next? Yeah, I, you know, um, I've always been an implementer. I'm not sure I'm the biggest, most creative idea person. I think I've been very lucky to be at the right place at the right time to implement some of these programs. So I'm not sure I have the most creative ideas for the future. I, I do think, you know, we've made steady progress. Um, but I think, as we were saying earlier, it, it is a disappointment that the whole world hasn't taken this up. Yeah. And uh, I mean, the world has in some ways. There's there's more progress 
outside of the U.S. and places in their areas here. But um, so, you know, it may just be that science can only take you so far and um, voluntary action can only take you so far. Mm-hmm. Um, trying to think who's the Eleanor Ostrom was the, I think, the only woman that won the Nobel Prize for Economics. She, I remember reading a paper of hers, oh, a decade ago or so, called No More Panaceas. Mm. And this is really a digression, sorry. But, no, this is um, fine. You know, if you're an economist you of a certain sort, you think markets yeah. and incentives will right. fix everything. If you're a political scientist, you think it's a matter of political institutions and laws. Um, if you're a sociologist, anthropologist, you think it's you know, people's culture and norms. Mm-hmm. And, and really it's all of those um, in different mixes depending upon the setting. I think that's maybe why something like SARE worked so well because it could be at the level of people who know how their own community, their own um, uh, environment works. But I guess science can only go so far and I think think some of this maybe does need more regulation mm-hmm. for to you know kind of cut off the tail of some of the bad actors. You need the innovation at the upper end from the, the science. Um, I don't know. I, th- I think we have a lot more to do to really understand the human and social dimensions of this. And I think a lot of us came into this with an environmental perspective. Um, you know, we care about the soil. Farmers care about the soil, the natural environment, the wildlife. Um, but really, I think most people more think about the people side of things. You think about yourself, your family, your community, and then the environment is out here somewhere. Yeah. So as much progress as we've made in bringing in the human and social dimensions into sustainable ag. And, oh, I have to credit Southern Sarah, Jeff Jordan, the Southern coordinator, and um, oh, Doug, oh, shoot, it's not coming, at Texas. Uh, oh, I will come up with that name okay. to give it to you because it's a very important one. I was just talking to somebody about it. Doug Constance. Oh. Doug Constance has been a real leader with Jeff in bringing in, he's been on the administrative council for Southern Sarah, leaders in bringing in the social, human and social dimension, because they're in the social sciences. Um, but anyway, I think as much as we we need that in agriculture to be truly sustainable, I think it is the human and social dimensions that will bring larger society into supporting um, and caring about sustainable agriculture. And a case in point, Nancy Creamer at NC State, another person that it would be great for you to interview because she, she's been in the university setting her whole career, but she's been very policy aware, very policy active. And I remember her telling me probably about 10 years ago when we were doing Know Your Farmer, Know Your Food, and that was getting started. She, they did a statewide um, plan for getting, I think it was 10% of North Carolina produce to come from local growers. And I remember her saying, 
She'd been trying to get sustainable agriculture on people's radar screen her whole career. They were doing systems experiments, soil quality, cover crops, sustainable pork, all of that. But it was when they started talking about food systems and that connection between producers and consumers that things really took off. Yeah. So I think the and I so there is a lot of movement around local and regional, but I still think there's there's more that can be done around other human and social dimensions that will kind of help to embed sustainable agriculture more broadly in society and get more support for science, regulation, cultural changes. Um, yeah, the other, the other thing that I'm really, really excited about, really proud of having a small part of, is just mentoring new people who've come to NIFA, um, and the fact that we've had graduate student awards, and that the faculty that we have funded have mentored students. There are so many people out there working in this space that I don't know. I've never heard of. Mm-hmm. I mean, when I started, I probably knew most of the leaders and I, there's so many people out there um, that are doing this work and they care about it and will take it the next step. Um, I'm very optimistic about that. And I think we should be investing as much as we can in students and the next generation, which SARE has done through graduate student grants, but SARE has really been research and extension. It hasn't been as much the kind of higher ed course curriculum, mm-hmm. which maybe that's something that um, could use some work. Good, good. Well, I think you're on firm ground. You know, this morning we interviewed uh, Senator, uh, former Senator Tom Harkin, and he talked a good deal about how he was so proud of where his work, he was the chair of the Health and Human Services Committee, as well as at, under uh, until he retired uh, in 2015. And then he uh, also always been on the ag committees and bringing those issues of health and agriculture together and having them manifest and improve uh, programs for snacks in schools and mm-hmm. food in all sorts of ways is really his way of one of the ways of really reaching deeper into people uh, yeah. and, and solving yeah. some of those issues and building a constituency for it. How uh, little kids getting good, fresh food in schools can influence their parents' buying habits. Absolutely. That sort of thing. So and I know you've interviewed Kate Clancy. Yes. And she's been such a leader in food system. And right. Gail Feenstra, my um, former colleague at UC yeah. Sarah, was another leader in the whole food systems area. Yeah, I think some of us maybe took a while to come around to that. But, yeah. yeah. But, uh, I think so. Yeah. Well, good. I, uh, if you, I'm very happy with this interview and everything you've said. I guess I would like to add. I know you're retired, and uh, but I hope you're not really retired, and that you'll open up and being a to, to being a mentor. Or I'm sure you'll be called on if you aren't already to continue some work that'll continue to move these things forward. I have told people that you know now I'm retired, I can advocate. Right. Um, I've taken a bit of a break. Sure. It's been four or five months. Um, I've been active um, as a Virginia Master Naturalist, oh, which is a great program. I don't know if they have it in Minnesota, but it's not in every state. It's in maybe half the states. It's similar to Master Gardeners. Oh, yeah. But it's for natural ecosystem work, citizen science, or um, ecological restoration you take training, and since ecology was my roots, yeah. um, I took that training last winter, and Cooperative Extension is a, a big part of it, hosts it in Virginia, um, along with resource agencies, and got involved in a couple of breeding bird surveys. 
bird watch. I mean, the connection between oh. bird watchers and agriculture, that yeah. is an area that, right. that is so ripe for exploitation. Yeah. Uh, but I've been doing the bird watching part and the breeding bird surveys and Good. taking a bit of a break. But I've, I've told folks I'm, I can advocate now and I do intend to get more involved in Virginia. I never felt that I could, even though I lived in Maryland and then Virginia, I didn't feel I could get too involved in one state's activities because I was doing this national job. Yeah. It'd be a conflict of interest. But now I'm looking forward to getting involved in uh, more things locally. Good. Well, and I think you're coming close to following the advice that I've always heard when I retired from the McKnight Foundation was don't do anything for six months. Because you're going to get a lot of people asking you to do stuff and then figure out what yeah, you're going to do. Yeah. So I think taking a break is a good idea, too. Yeah. yeah. So. Well, good. Thank you very much. It's Thank really, you, really nice. And thank you for doing this whole project. I mean, not just with me, but I looked at some of the others and oh, boy, good. I want to read them all and watch them all. I'm yes. honored to be among them. Thank you. This has been part of the National Sustainable Agriculture Oral History Archive, produced by Ron Cruz available on the Minnesota Institute for Sustainable Agriculture website. The podcast was made possible by the Center for Rural Affairs.